This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we have your word to guide and direct us, and that as we study your word, we are to be challenged in the way in which we think and the way in which we live, that your word will rebuke us, correct us, and it will guide us in the paths of righteousness. So, Father, we pray that as we study your word today, that you will enable us to understand the things that we study and that we would have the humility to apply them to our own lives, that we may better serve you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, I attended Shabbat services over at Beth Yashurn, which is the largest congregational synagogue in the United States. The speaker that night was Rabbi Daniel Gordis, who has quite a genealogical pedigree, I might say, in that his grandfather, uh, Robert Gordis, wrote a number of uh, commentaries that are widely known within the uh, scholarly community on Song of Solomon, Proverbs, uh, Job, and uh, some of which I studied and worked through when I was in seminary. So I have heard him speak before. He's a tremendous speaker. He is a uh, he writes columns for the Jerusalem Post frequently, Commentary Magazine. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, he had a column appear in the New York Times. He and his family made Aliyah to Israel uh, in 1998. At the time that he went there, his children were young. I've heard him tell these stories a couple of times now about his children. And he was faced with a reality in Israel that he never faced here. And as he tells the story, he talks about how as he was growing up in Baltimore and went through high school at a high school that was uh, uh, mostly Jewish with a lot of friends that he knew most of his life, uh, not only at school, but also synagogue. His father was a rabbi. But as he, as he grew up and was focusing on graduation and where he would, uh, what he would do after graduation from high school, where he would go to uh, university, uh, which he did, and then, as he puts it, then he went to graduate school, and being from the family he's from, another graduate school. Um, he says it never... It never occurred to him or any of his friends or anyone he or any of his friends knew to consider serving his nation in the armed forces. And yet when he moved to Israel, 
He was confronted with the reality that his son and his daughter, upon graduation from high school, would be required to put in three years of, I think three years for men, two years for women, of national service in uh, the Israeli army or some other branch of national service. And then he goes on to tell some different stories, especially about his daughter who was had a lot of problems with authority and some of her <clears throat> learning experiences as she had to deal with military authority in the IDF. But as he concluded that part of his message, his point was that, that what's important about requiring national service for everyone is it teaches several things other than just having just the uh, you know the initial objective which is to have bodies in the military but it teaches character because you're serving something outside of yourself at the age of 18 when most of us are about as self-absorbed as we can possibly be they're put in a position where that self-absorption is knocked out of them, and they have to learn to serve an ideal that is greater than any of them, and that is the ideal of their nation and serving their nation. It teaches a quality of life that is related to humility, and that is service. And when we are serving a cause when we are serving something greater than ourselves, then it is in that context that character is developed and character is built because we are not living for our own desires and our own pleasure, but we are doing something for others. Now, that truth, that principle that we see in a broad, almost establishment sense is true especially in the Christian life. It is true in the body of Christ because we are called in the body of Christ as believers in Jesus Christ, as members of the body, to serve one another. Christian service often is not emphasized in some circles because in other circles, Christian service has been wrongly emphasized as a means toward spirituality where it becomes a legalistic, superficial uh, kind of thing. And that is true in a lot of churches. I've told this story before that when I was in my my first church, pastoring my first church down in Lamarck, that I had a man come to me and said, you know, the way to really get this church to grow is as soon as you get somebody, a visitor who comes, is you find something for them to do. And then you put them to work, and then that and develops a commitment on their part to the church, to the organization, and that's how you build commitment to the church, and that's how you build a church. Well, that may be how you build some organizations, but that's not how the ministry of the body of Christ functions, because Christian service within the body of Christ is something that should flow and develop out of and as a result of a person's individual spiritual growth and their capacity to love the Lord Jesus Christ and to love God and to serve him. Serving him, serving Christ, 
is ultimately the result of our spiritual growth and our spiritual maturity. So the principle that this man was emphasizing is true in some sense. The means of carrying out is not. I mean, that's how a lot of churches do grow is they use these kinds of uh, uh, techniques, but then you, you end up with a church that usually compromises a lot of doctrine and compromises a lot of other things just for the sake of numbers. But just because churches misuse and abuse the emphasis on Christian service doesn't mean you throw the baby out with the bathwater and you run to the other uh, extreme and de-emphasize Christian service. Christian service, just as service it to a nation through the uh, armed services or in some other way builds character, Christian service even more so. Christian service builds character and teaches us to think in terms of the body of Christ and why Jesus Christ has called us and gifted each one of us to serve the body of Christ. Every one of us has a spiritual gift. You don't have to know what that spiritual gift is to use it. I remember when I was in high school, many of you can probably relate to this, trying to figure out, well, what do I want to do with my life? What do I what do I want to major in when I go off to college? I know there are a lot of people who change majors as frequently as they change clothes. And this is typical at that age. You just have different interests. In one year, it's one thing. The next year, it's something else, and you, you're not settled on things. And I took some of these standardized tests that they have for trying to identify what your, what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, where your interests lie, and those kinds of things can be helpful. What I've discovered is that as we grow up in life, we all have certain things that we tend to gravitate to because we like them, we enjoy them, and we have some level of proficiency at them. And as we learn what, what it is that we like, some, for some of us we discover these things early in life, sometimes it takes a little longer, but as you grow and mature, your strengths, your talents begin to be obvious as a result of your growth, you don't have to go out and discover your strengths, your talents, your interests before you can grow. Same thing's true in the Christian life. There are many mature and maturing believers who have no idea what their spiritual gift is, but they serve the body of Christ and they serve the Lord Jesus Christ in numerous ways, and that's a manifestation of their spiritual gifts. You don't have to know the gift in order to utilize the gift, but as a maturing believer, we are to we are expected and we have been given various responsibilities to serve one another, to pray for one another, to admonish one another, to teach one another. All of these commands are there. We are all expected to give. All Christians are expected to witness, but only a few are gifted in these areas, and those that are gifted in those areas help those of us who aren't to understand how we can be more effective in those areas wherein we are we are not gifted. So as we look this morning at Colossians 1.25, I want you to think in terms of fulfilling your ministry in the local church. 
Now, in this passage, the Apostle Paul is focusing on his ministry, which, of course, means that he is an apostle. We are not apostles. The gift of apostleship died out at the end of the first century. It no longer continues. There were certain gifts that were temporary, that were given only during the first century in order to provide for edification during a time when the uh, canon of Scripture was not complete. But once the canon of Scripture was complete, then those temporary gifts, also known as the sign gifts, apostle, prophet, healing, tongues, miracles, these sign gifts passed away. And the other gifts continue throughout this, this church age. In Colossians 1.24, as to pick up the context, as we've studied, Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. He's talking about his, the fact that by serving the Lord Jesus Christ, by serving the local church, he goes through an additional layer of adversity and suffering in life. But he can rejoice, has a mental attitude of joy in the midst of that suffering. doesn't mean that the suffering is made pleasurable, but that he can endure the suffering because he understands the ultimate goal. He rejoices in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. This doesn't deal with the afflictions on the cross. It has to do with the non uh, redemptive suffering in the life of Christ for spiritual growth. And he does this for the sake of his body, which is the church. And I emphasized this last time, the importance of understanding the church as a body of believers. And the thing about the, the, the metaphor that Paul uses when talking about the church as a body of believers is that he speaks in both Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 12 of how we are members of one another. It's not this individualistic, atomistic idea that there's just a whole lot of different individuals and we're all pursuing spiritual growth separate from one another and we're all on the same uh, path, facing forward, serving uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, growing spiritually, but th- there is an interdependency on each member of the local church. So then he says in verse 25 of this church, this really picks up the idea there in the, in, at the end of verse 24, uh, I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, in verse 23 where he says that it was of this gospel that I, Paul, became a minister. And the word there in the Greek is diakonos, which though it became a technical term later on for a deacon, a particular kind of person who served in the local church, it generally has the idea of just being someone who serves in some capacity. And it is often a synonym for the the ministry, and it relates to service within the local church, And so we relate that to ministry, and so it's translated minister here. But technically what Paul is saying that it is of the, it's the gospel that he be, uh, of which he became a servant. He is serving the gospel. That is his ultimate goal and purpose in life. So he picks up that idea in verse, verse 25 here, 
where it says, Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit. Notice the focus on serving the body of Christ. It's not about Paul. It's about the the body of Christ. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ and his mission. Bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Now, there are three words that we see in this context, two in verse 25 and one in verse 26, that we're going to need to focus on a little bit. The first word is minister, the second word is stewardship, and the third word is mystery. In verse 26, he says that he is this this mystery, the preaching of the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. So let me just give you a quick overview of these three key words, minister, stewardship, and mystery. The word translated minister is the word diakonos, which I mentioned a minute ago, translated servant, minister, Deacon, originally it was used of waiters, those who served tables. Later it came to mean anyone who was in some sort of service capacity, serving uh, someone. So this is the idea that the Apostle Paul is emphasizing here, that he's made a servant of this church, which is identified in the previous verse as the body of Christ. So there's two aspects to this. One is that he is serving Jesus Christ. It was Jesus Christ who appeared to him on the road to Damascus and called him into this ministry to serve him, to take the word of God as a light uh, to the Gentiles. And so he is to serve Christ. But secondly, in a secondary sense, he is serving Christ by serving the body of Christ, which is the church. So both of these ideas are present here. It is according to a certain standard we have, and that standard is this, is represented by the word oikonomos, translated stewardship. Oikonomos can be broken down into its two root components. It's a compound word. Oikos means house. Namos means law. House law came to refer to an administrator, an administration, so that when you are living in someone's home, you are under their rules. They are the ones responsible for that home. They set the rules. That's the, that's the idea. So it was used, though, uh, to refer to someone who was a steward, someone who was a manager of a household or a large estate. They oversaw the finances. They oversaw the budget. They oversaw uh, the work. They made sure that the, the work was accomplished in a timely manner. And so this was a position of, of, great, uh, of great responsibility. It's a word that is used by the Apostle Paul in parallel to another word that he uses, a doulos, uh, for a, which means a bond slave or a servant. And he frequently uses that to describe the role of an apostle. An apostle is a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we have, we are a steward. 
he says, an apostle has been given a stewardship or delegated a responsibility of oversight within the body of Christ. Now, the third word is the word mystery, and this isn't like a murder mystery where you're looking for someone who did something. It's not even equivalent to the Greek usage of the word in that context in what was known as the mysteries, the mystery religions, where it was some sort of secret unknown rite, secret handshake, secret code, that you were given as you, after you were initiated into this particular group. Paul uses it a number of times, and it refers to previously unrevealed scripture. So mystery is essentially a term that is part of understanding revelation. That which has not yet been revealed is called a mystery. When it has now been revealed, then he would say this mystery has been revealed. And so we have that uh, kind of terminology as we do in Colossians 1.26. This mystery has been hidden, but now has been revealed uh, to his saints. Now, these three words are also found in another important passage, and that is in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. There Paul says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. Now, the context for what Paul says in the first part of 1 Corinthians 4 is that his authority is being questioned and challenged by those in Corinth. You know, Corinth was just made up of a lot of rabble-rousers. Corinth was a port city in the ancient world. It had been founded as a Roman colony, so you had a lot of retired military from the Roman army who settled there, but as a port city, it tended to pick up the riffraff from all over uh, the Roman Empire and the Eastern world, and so there were just about anything you wanted you could find in Corinth. And so it's no surprise that Corinth was considered the most carnal, the most disobedient, the most rebellious, the most perverse, in some ways, church of all of the churches that were founded uh, in, in the first century. And so as you get a lot of people who are somewhat unruly and arrogant, uh, of course, they are challenging the authority of someone who is telling them how they need to straighten things out. And so in the middle of this opening section, in chapter 4, Paul gives a short defense of his apostleship, and in doing so, he identifies the primary responsibility of an apostle, and this also applies to a pastor, the way it applies to a pastor is a pastor is a, we might say, sort of a similar to an apostle. He has a similar job description, but whereas an apostle was to take the word of God to a broad number of churches, and a pastor and a, an apostle had authority over pastors and over uh, a number of local churches, a pastor is simply the leader and the shepherd of one single congregation. So, But there are certain similarities in the job responsibility that God has given to pastors as well as to apostles. So it also helps to understand 
what the accountability basis is for pastors. Let a man, Paul says, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ. Now, here he uses a little different word for, for servant. He doesn't use the word diakonos. He uses a close synonym, uh, huperetes, which refers to a, a person who's a servant, a helper, or an assistant. And a number of times this word is used uh, as just a, vari- a variant, another word, rather than uh, the word uh, diakonos. Originally, it was a word that described a rower in a boat. So it carries a, a connotation of teamwork, one, a member of a team, not someone who is out on their own, but someone who is a member of a team working and pulling together. So he says, let a man consider us as servants of Christ. So the Apostle Paul is emphasizing that he is not serving his own end, but he is serving Jesus Christ. As I pointed out a minute ago, he's serving Jesus Christ directly because of the commission given him to take the gospel to the Gentiles, and he is serving Jesus Christ by serving the local churches, serving the body of Christ as represented in those in those local churches. He says we're to be considered as servants of Christ and stewards. Now here again we have the same word, oikonomos, that this is a delegated responsibility that's been given to him to handle what? The mysteries of God. So the primary focus of the ministry of an apostle, and in a similar way the primary focus of the ministry of a pastor is in relation to the mysteries of God or divine revelation. That means the Bible. It was the responsibility of the apostles to uh, record Scripture, uh, Peter, Paul, James, John, Jude, and it's the responsibility of pastors to take that revelation which has been recorded and to teach it, to explain it, to a congregation so that they can utilize it for spiritual uh, growth. A pastor does not exercise the same level of authority as an, ap- an apostle, but he has a limited realm of authority within the local church, but that authority comes from and is based on the Word of God. So we're servants of Christ, and we are stewards. We have a delegated responsibility to properly handle the revelation of God, the mysteries of God. So what's the criterion for evaluating job performance? That's verse 2. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. This is often a problem with some churches. I've been in congregations where I had uh, a deacon board that was made up of entrepreneurs, they were always after me. Come up with, we, we need to have a quantifiable, measurable uh, way of evaluating your job performance. Okay? And it always end up with number of visitors coming, numbers, all this kind of stuff, and I, I, would, I would just live on this verse. Because you can't, the only way you can measure or quantify in terms of what God's looking at for a pastor is that he's faithful faithful to serving God in terms of his study of God's Word and his teaching of God's Word. 
That's the primary job description of a pastor. We live in a world 2,000 years separated from the New Testament where a lot of different traditions have developed in different denominations related to what a pastor is supposed to do. I know some of my friends who are in the uh, Black Baptist Church have a difficult time because in the Black Baptist Church, the tradition is that the pastor is involved in community action, the pastor is involved in a lot of different community affairs. The pastor is the one who's always supposed to be by the bedside in the hospital. The pastor is the one who's always uh, there when somebody encounters some kind of personal problem. And everything is put on the pastor to do all of the, all of the work and all the ministry. And to have the time to spend 80 or 90% of his time studying the word just cuts completely across the grain of denominational expectations. They're not the only denomination that falls prey to those kinds of expectations. The expectation, though, of the Word of God is that a pastor, like an apostle, is to be faithful in how he handles the responsibility of the Word of God in teaching the Word of God and in and studying and the Word of God so that he is properly uh, prepared. The requirement is to be faithful to God. So let's, let me make some observations about this. First of all, in a broad sense, let's take the application of this beyond just the pastor because this applies to every believer in terms of their spiritual gift. The believer is accountable to Christ for the use of his spiritual gift. That's the broad principle. Every one of you has a spiritual gift. Some of you have, may have more than one spiritual gift. And at the judgment seat of Christ, one of the things that is going to be uh, evaluated is our use of our spiritual gift. Again, remember, it doesn't matter whether or not you know that spiritual gift. If you're growing and maturing, that gift will begin to manifest itself in different ways. So we will be accountable to Christ for the use of our spiritual gift. A pastor is accountable to Christ that he's faithful to his study of God's word and communication of that. That's the second point. The pastor is evaluated on the basis of his faithfulness, on the basis of his faithfulness to uh, to God's word. And then third, faithfulness is defined in both in, in two directions, faithful to God in how you study the word and faithful to the congregation in teaching the word. There are different ways in which this, I think, needs to be applied. One of them is in terms of the daily schedule of a pastor, in terms of how he spends his time, and how he, and being free from other distractions so that he can focus on a study of the Word. Another way is like this last week when I went off to uh, Pennsylvania for this uh, Council of Dispensational Hermeneutics, and this was, uh, this was a great conference. Um, there were several papers that were given, that were presented, that dealt with some uh, difficult topics. Uh, some of the men who wrote those papers and were presenting 
uh, had some different views than I have, but they were, it was thought-provoking. It was challenging. It was you always learn something uh, from going to a conference of that type where nearly everybody there thinks within the same framework, and so you're wrestling with how to understand different things, uh, different things in Scripture. So that's just some of the ways in which a pastor is trained. A belief in a pastor having a trained ministry that pastors should go to seminary. Sadly, there are people and churches that I've heard of where they just don't really care whether a pastor has a formal education. It used to be that uh, pastors were expected to have a good education and to know Greek and Hebrew and Latin. In fact, in the colonial period in this country, Nearly everyone had to learn Greek, and and uh, many boys, as they came up through school, had to also learn Latin and Hebrew because there was the expectation that even if you were not going to be a pastor, it would still be important for you to, as a as a non-pastor sitting in the pew, it would be important for you to know. Greek and Hebrew, so that you could get more out of your sermons. There were times in this country when half the men and women in the congregation would know at least enough Greek to be able to follow along uh, a pas- the pastor in a Greek text as they sat there in the pew. And the fact that there's probably not but one person here with a Greek text is an indication of how far we have fallen. And so we need to be challenged to go to a higher level of expectation. Before we finish up, I want to go to one other passage, help us understand the dynamics within the body of Christ. This is in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. I just want to read through the passage and then make a couple of points. This is a passage related to four spiritual gifts. There's a lot of debate whether or not this is spiritual gifts uh, or gifted men or offices. I think that that's trying to slice the bologna a little too thin. If it's talking about spiritual gifts, they're only manifested within certain people. So they are obviously talking about gifted men. If the focus is on gifted men, it's obviously the gifts that of those men that are in focus. He himself refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ." that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things unto him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now let me point out a couple of things as we think through this passage. 
This passage is talking about the defines the role and the purpose of those four gifted men that are mentioned there, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. Now, apostles and prophets are off the scene. Those are temporary gifts. So it's talking about the role, purpose, and function of the gift, pastor, teacher, and evangelist. And it is for equipping the saints. That's their job description. That's the pastor's job description is to equip the saints, that's everybody in the church, to do the work of service, the work of ministry, so that part of the goal objective is, as I teach the word to you, is that you learn to serve Christ within the local body. That doesn't mean there aren't areas of application outside the body, but the primary focus here, as in Romans 14 and and uh, 1 Corinthians 12 is that the gifted, the spiritual gifts are given to believers for serving within the body of Christ. But I want you to go to the ultimate objective as, as it's described in the last few verses. In verse 13, it's identified until we all come to the unity of the faith Notice it's the unity of the faith. Here the, the idea of the faith relates to doctrine. It comes to a unity of doctrine, not at the expense of doctrine, which is what happens in ecumenicalism. Everybody tries to you know, get rid of the things that make them different so that we can all come together and be happy in believing in nothing. But it's the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man. That's maturity. So the ultimate goal is spiritual maturity for each individual. And that maturity is equated to the fullness of Christ, which is so we can define maturity as Christ-likeness in character and in service. It's depicted negatively in verse 14 as not being like children who are confused by every different thing that's taught. They know the truth and they stick with the truth and they're not blown off course by false doctrine and deceitful planning. It works itself out in terms of the interaction of the body. This is where I focused last week. Speaking the truth in love. Actually, the text has the idea of Uh, It's a participle of the word for truth. Uh, In a raw translation sense, it would be truthing in love, but it sometimes the word, as in the Old Testament, the word for truth has the idea of faithfulness. It's being faithful to truth and being true to one another in love, just as uh, Paul says later on in Ephesians that we are to uh, speak the truth to one another in love. But that we grow up in all things to Christ who is the head. And then look at verse 16. From whom, that's Christ, the whole body. Now that's talking about the body of Christ. Now each one of us are members of the body of Christ. So from whom the whole body joined and knit together. So that's talking about the interdependency of every individual member of the body of Christ. That interdependency by what? By what every joint supplies. See, it doesn't say by what the pastor supplies, by what the evangelist supplies, by what the apostles or prophets supplies. It's by what every joint supplies. 
every believer has a vital role within the team of the body of Christ. And every joint supplies something in terms of the whole. So it joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share. So every part, every individual believer, by virtue of the fact that you're given a spiritual gift, means that with that spiritual gift, you've been given a, a delegated a responsibility within the body of Christ. So don't think of a spiritual gift as, as simply something that God gave me and I need to learn how to, how to develop that, but understand that that spiritual gift is a responsibility God gave you so that by growing to maturity, you will use that for the benefit of the entire body of Christ. And it is in that dynamic of the body of Christ, as every part does its share, that growth for the body, see, not the individual spiritual growth, but as individuals grow spiritually and then are involved in serving one another, this is how the body, the church, the local church, matures together and develops as a whole. So it's not about me and my spiritual life. I've heard people say that. Well, all I need is my tape recorder, my whatever, my iPod or my iPhone, and as long as I'm studying, uh, listening to doctrine every day, I'm going to grow, and that's it. That is still a narcissistic view of your spiritual life. Your spiritual growth is designed to prepare and equip you to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, and you do. You, we serve the Lord Jesus Christ by serving the body of Christ, just like the Apostle Paul was saying in Colossians one twenty-five. Now, the I want to go back to one other word here used in Ephesians four that the purpose for these gifts for the pastor, teacher, and evangelist is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Who does the ministry? Not the pastor, but the people. It's the congregation that does the ministry as a result of your spiritual growth. Now, that word that's translated equipping is the Greek word katartismos, which means to equip somebody, to prepare somebody for service. This is the focal point, and how are you trained? It's through the Word of God. We're trained by understanding what the Word of God teaches, what our priorities should be. The root of that word, katartismos, is made up of kata, which which is a preposition that intensifies it, but the root is uh, artizo are the adjective artios, which shows up again in Second um, Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. Now this is a passage we all know about. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, or all Scripture is breathed out by God, and is profitable for what? For teaching, for doctrine. That's what doctrine means. It's just for teaching, for instruction, for reproof. Reproof means that we ha- we come to church with a lot of wrong ideas from human viewpoint. We're going to hear the word of God, and it's going to stomp on our toes, and we're going to exchange uh, our opinions for the truth of God's word. That's correction. It straightens us out for instruction in righteousness, but this is for a purpose, that the man of God, that is the maturing believer, may be complete 
thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, the word that's translated complete is the adjective artios, but the word that's translated thoroughly equipped is also built off of that same uh, verb, artizo, from exartizo. And so you have the double use of this word here indicating that it is through Scripture that we are completely and totally and thoroughly equipped. We don't have to go take courses in psychology to be able to help people. We don't have to go to all of these other things that that society or culture seems to indicate that if we're going to be able to help people, we need to have these kinds of degrees. This is what happened historically in the 60s and 70s, is that you had a lot of men who went to seminary and wanted to help people, but after seminary they said, well, I don't know enough to help people. I have to go get a degree in counseling or a degree in psychology or something else. No, the Word of God is sufficient to train all of us to utilize whatever our spiritual gifts are, to minister to one another. And it's through that interaction of our ministry as we grow to maturity that the body of believers within a local church goes to maturity because all the parts are functioning in terms of the whole. And so this is the same idea that Paul is emphasizing here in terms of his stewardship in Colossians 1.25, that he was given this stewardship from God to fulfill the word of God, to fully carry it out. His was different from ours, but the principle still applies that we've been given a responsibility, and as we fulfill that responsibility in terms of our spiritual gift, it fulfills or brings to completion the word of God in terms of our own spiritual life and spiritual focus. Now, for the Apostle Paul, this is related to his communication of the mystery doctrines which relate to this church age, and we'll pick that up in verse 26 next Sunday morning uh, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this time to study your word today. Thank you for the opportunity to be confronted with the truth of the body of Christ and our role in it, to be reminded that we have each been given Uh, this responsibility through a spiritual gift, and this has been delegated to us. And so it is our responsibility to grow and mature so that that gift will then begin to manifest itself and we can serve within the body of Christ. Father, we pray that there's anyone here this morning who has uh, never trusted Christ as Savior, that while they're here this morning that they would make that decision. Maybe you're unsure, uncertain of your eternal destiny. Scripture teaches that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid your penalty so that simply by believing and trusting in him, then you then will have eternal life, that this will be given to you and it can never be taken away from you. So our prayer that if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ as Savior, that this will be your opportunity to do so. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with what we've studied today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.